most of these nutritional recommendations and insights for the most part have remained the same over hundreds of years. And so I just, I, I want to like bring some like moderation and temperance to like, like nutrition mania and, and diet mania. Yes. There are ways of optimization. Yes. It's personalized. You people respond a little bit differently, but following some basic principles and then just trying to actually like not overthink it can probably take you pretty far. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Invictus Mindset Podcast. Today's guest is a life sciences entrepreneur, and he's the co-founder of Seed Health, Mr. Raja Deer. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks. Great to, great to be on. I am joined by my colleague today. He's an Invictus coach and nutrition expert, Mr. Fritz Nugent. Welcome to the show, dude. Thanks, Bryce. Great to be here. Both of you, Raja. I'm very excited to kind of lead this conversation and pick your mind today, Raja. Before we kind of dive in, I'm very curious, what was your upbringing and background like that eventually led you into kind of the science field and the world of microbiome and gut health? I think like most kids, I started out very curious about the natural world. You know, the incredible diversity that we see around us just in the visible world, I mean, even just restricted to to mammals is the product of such wild genetic variation that it's hard to, it's hard to not be uh, blown away by that. And then I think the older you get, the more that you start to visualize things that are more conceptual or maybe not as apparent. And that's where the world of microbes and microbiology really kind of took life for me. I mean, if you think that there's, there's variation in the visual world, it's mind blowing how much, how many different types of microbes exist and have existed over the course of time. And they do very interesting things and they are extremophiles. They can handle crazy environments and, and seemingly spontaneously that transition happened where, you know, talk about zero to one, that from like nothing to something was just something that blew me away. And so probably as it relates to, to the microbiome and human health, my first kind of inflection point on my journey was in 2006, when a very important paper for the field came out where they actually looked at twin mice. One was obese and one was lean. And they transplanted the, the microbes from one to the other and their entire body composition and metabolic profile changed. And so this was kind of where okay, it was interesting intellectually, it was interesting scientifically, and now you're starting to see that this field is really at the intersection of so many different areas of biology, and that was kind of it for me. The next, I aggressively uh, tracked every paper over basically the next 10 years that, that led to the founding of SEED. That's very cool, man. And, and one of the things that we really admire about you is you know, you don't give in to just marketing hearsay. You really lean into this concept of education. And, you know, I think Fritz and I can both agree that, you know, your ability to utilize language from your past in debate and utilize that language to create very simple understanding of very complex topics like microbiology and a lot of these different terms within gut health and whatnot. And with that being said, you know, we look at terms that we see in the health food industry, like probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics, and microbiome. 
And for our listeners today, I'd love to go down that rabbit hole a little bit with you and define what those terms mean and then, you know, how those things can potentially affect people within the health and wellness space. And so starting off, what are probiotics? The probiotics are live organisms that confer a health benefit. That's it. You know, there's so much misuse of the term that people think that if it's fermented, it's a probiotic. They think that if it's, you know, a beverage that has a metabolic uh, for, for post-fermentation byproducts that it's probiotic. They think that if it's a snack food that they threw some spore formers in that it's probiotic, but it's almost, it's almost like saying, just saying something is probiotic because it's microbial is calling something knowledge just because it has words printed and bound under a cover, right? Like you can't say that for sure. You could, it could be anything in order for something to be considered a probiotic. You have to validate that these organisms have a benefit on the host and even then there can be different degrees of probiotic right like if if you take something and it mildly improves your gas production sure that could be considered probiotic but that's very different than strains of bacteria that signal to your small intestinal cells that change the way that your immune system responds to antigens so that, 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 that range is so wide where something could make you a, on the far end of the te- technical spectrum, something could make you a responder to cancer therapy, and something could make you burp less. And those things are not equal. And so my, my take-home message for probiotics is that it is a field in nutrition which is being thought of as a supplement, or it's being thought of as oh, well, it's a fermented food, or I get it from kimchi, or I get it from this, this, and this. And it's not really the case. I mean, there's very little data, actually. And even when there is data on fermented foods, there's very little data that they work in the way that certain organisms that we believe are, are, are the future are able to. So that's kind of the, the, the big take-home message I would, I would have for probiotics. And then what are your thoughts on the concept of prebiotics? So prebiotics are very simply things that your gut microbiome uses in some capacity to improve your health. So within prebiotics, there's now prebiotics, actually, you can get from food and you can get a lot of it. Actually, the primary way to get prebiotics is from food. These are things that are carbohydrates that are non-digestible, so they're non-glycemic. And what they're actually typically thought of is, is food for your fiber-loving microbiome, right? The, the, the community of organisms in your, in your colon, small intestines in your gut. And so when I, I always laugh when I see like beverages or functional foods or something or like, or like protein powders or supplements that like use prebiotics as a buzzword, but then have like a gram or two grams of it, like you get... 10 to 40 grams of prebiotics just by eating a moderate amount of non-processed foods, right? So that's significantly more than what you get. It, there's, it's not apparent that adding that extra gram or that extra two grams is really going to make a difference. In fact, it's mostly used for marketing. A second definition of prebiotics that, that I scientifically and seed as a company are very interested in, and they're non-fermenting probi- prebiotics. So this is kind of like 
the, the, the next evolution of thinking about how your gut microbiome is actually used as an accessory organ in your biology, right? So these are things that are only converted by your gut microbiome into what's called secondary metabolites that your body then uses. So I'll give you a perfect example. In a lot of the health and wellness and fitness community, people know that cruciferous vegetables, they produce isothiocinates, which are produced into a very powerful metabolite called sulforaphane. Sulforaphane has been talked about widely as this kind of super resetter of your metabolic clock and involved in uh, mitophagy, autophagy, cellular clearing of senescent cells. It's just kind of this like, it uh, works a little bit on the, the native glutathione pathways in the body as well. So it's, you know, this very interesting compound. But that conversion doesn't happen if you don't have gut bacteria that are involved in that primary conversion, right? So now you're, now you're saying, hey, this is something that we know is good for us, but your microbiome is a regulator on whether that activity can even happen in the first place. It's very similar with, with catechins and green and different tea extracts. It's very similar in urolithins from things like the pomegranate fruit, which is something we're very, very invested in, right? So this is a kind of that next wave of what we call prebiotics or microbiota accessible compounds, which your body and your microbiome actually use to produce entirely new molecules from food that your body loves. I love that answer. And I love that our population now can kind of differentiate between these marketing terms of probiotics and prebiotics that are thrown on just about every health food supplement right now. What are your thoughts on uh, symbiotics? And, and you know, what does that term kind of mean? As I know that directly correlates to the seed symbiotic that you guys are now providing. Yeah, so symbiotic is very, it's just when those two things are combined together. So it's when you have multiple sites, target sites within a single composition. So today, the symbiotics are, are combinations or pairings, but in the future, we're going to actually get what's called synergistic symbiotics. And so you can imagine, let's say, for example, like there's a discovery of a bacteria, which is like very important for the gut brain axis, right? Like there's a lot of neuroactive metabolites that are made within the gut. So how do you give something like that? You know, it's like sending a single organism into an entire ecosystem. So how do you help give it a better chance to, to colonize, to engraft, to, you know, kind of build a, a better presence? Well, one way that you can do that is you actually pair it with a prebiotic that only that organism can utilize. So now you can say, okay, cool, we're sending something into the gut, but let's say, for example, that this bacteria loves mucin. Then you could find an analog or you can find a prebiotic or something that's a mucin analog, and you can actually use that in your composition, right? So this is kind of that next wave of that future that we're working on. It's like, how do you give a competitive advantage to a specific organism. Now, those things also carry risks, right? Because if you, if you give too much of an advantage to one organism, you disturb the normal ecological principles that provide for a check and balance within that ecosystem. So you got to be really careful. The burden of evidence is really high on that stuff. But I would say within our immediate lifetime, we're going to start to see some very interesting things that use that approach. Going back to this concept that you guys have put, you know, combined with regards to the seed supplement, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, 
you guys provide a prebiotic capsule with probiotics inside the capsule, which make the supplement more resilient as it's going through the digestive process into the digestive tract. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we look, I'm, I'm pretty shocked at how low the bar is within like the commercial dietary and nutrition supplement industry. So much so that there's a lot of like, if you go to a Whole Foods market or to your health food store, or even on Amazon, the bulk of the products, even now still talk about their potency at time of manufacture. Like that's, so, so there's two things you want to think about here. The first is how many live cells do you actually have in your product when you take it? And that's typically what the entire industry has been focused on, right? That's like, that's not really rocket science. I, I think now that's just like a ticket to entry. That's just table stakes. Like you got to make something that has a quality that when customers buy it is the same quality as when you made it, right? So if you ever see anything that says that time of manufacture, just run the other way because they're not even doing the base quality assurance and quality control on that product. It could have zero live cells on it. Like there's one product, I think it's Dr. O'Hara's or Dr. O'Hara's, which literally has less than 1 billion cells. And that's only at time of manufacture. And they combine it with a ton of other ingredients, which are known to destroy the biological activity and potency of microbial cells. So I just don't understand at a certain point how products like this can still be on the market, right? Like there's a, it's a very simple thing. If you're selling live organisms, that's the industry that these companies are in. You got to sell live organisms. Part two is kind of like the evolution of that, which very few people have actually even directly looked at, which is, well, what happens when you ingest this? Now, typically people will just say, okay, at the end of shelf life, and they'll, they'll close the book there. Or some of the more companies that market like, higher survivability, acid-resistant capsule. What they do in this system is they actually just, it, it's as crude as it sounds. They drop their capsule for 38 minutes in a beaker that has pH of a certain, you know, 2.8 or 3.1, whatever conditions they're mimicking. And then they pull that capsule out after that period of time and they do a, a colony plating. That's it. Every time you hear this is the survivability of it. That's what those people have done. This is multi hundred million billion dollar companies. That's the extent of their science. Now, that's not how the digestive system works. That's not how the gastrointestinal tract works. We actually not only did about 18 months and dozens of iterations of this dual capsule system that we built in house to find that right magical release profile where it survives the stomach, but it doesn't overshoot the small intestines and just dump it all in the colon where basically it's just like what, exactly what it sounds. It's a drop in the ocean, right? It's not going to do that that much. Most of the immune system and immune cells are in the small intestines. So you want this precision release. You want it to get past stomach acid, but you want it to drop in the small, upper small intestines. So in this, we tested it under an entire system that has a, micro, a human microbiome transplanted inside of it it has a human mucosa in the small intestinal chambers. Wow. It has five different iterations and steps, including multiple for each aspect of the gastrointestinal tract. And it simulates not just stomach pH, but stomach pH under fasted and fed conditions in different, different experiments. And things like digestive enzymes, things like bile salts, things that are highly toxic to microbial cells that no one really evaluates before. So this is really the gold standard, right? This is the closest way that you can look 
mechanistically at the gastrointestinal tract and show this happens. We ended up coming out with a hundred percent small intestinal release profile and survivability in triple kit. This is as close to a perfect score as you can get. So at the very least, I mean, let people decide for themselves if the strains, the science, the underlying biology, the mechanisms is something in our product that they like. But at the very least, we can tell you this is going under fasted and fed conditions and getting a release profile exactly where biology dictates microbes to have the most biological activity when humans consume them. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why we wanted to connect with you today is just the depth of research and trying to get rid of the marketing hearsay. And I believe your co-founder with you, Ara Katz, is, is famous for kind of saying that the marketing is way ahead of the science, right? And like, hopefully we can utilize this platform as a tool to help educate, you know, motivate and steer people in the right direction to help with, with regards to understanding these, these concepts and then also enhancing their microbiome. Before I, I step aside and kind of let Fritz dive into the science world with you, would you mind helping our audience kind of understand what the term microbiome means and what that entails? Absolutely. So the microbiome has quickly become a buzzword, but at its core, it is just the collection of organisms in and on the human body. The majority of it is in your gastrointestinal tract, but it's in your mouth, it's on your skin, it's in your nose, it's in your lungs, it's in your, on your genitals. It's, I mean, every single exterior or environmental facing surface has a microbial colonization. And those organisms and their genes are called the microbiome. Awesome. Fritz, from your connection with people within our, our health and wellness industry and some of the questions that arise within the nutrition space, what are some of the things that arise within the terms of probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics, and microbiome? And what kind of questions do you get a lot about like fermented type foods? I think the biggest question I want to lead with is, why should athletes care about gut health? Athletes, uh, and especially elite athletes, will be the first to say that they suffer mostly than any other cohort from GI issues and digestive issues. And that's actually because extreme performance is actually a disruptor of your gut, right? So you have more intestinal permeability, you have higher byproducts, like uh, issues that require like things like clearance of lactate and other physiological processes that endurance athletes and, and high intensity training athletes specifically face. So that's the first is that like athletic, uh, in addition with like poor sleep, extreme performance actually does cause a temporary disruption to your, your digestive system and gastrointestinal tract. I can't point to science on this is my disclaimer for what I'm about to say next is that I don't know if this is true or not, but here's my hypothesis. So I think that if you imagine like in a, in a paleolithic environment, like if you're in an aggressive pursuit, right, or you're hunting or you're fleeing from something or there's a, a period of intense exercise, it would make sense that your body would want access to the information about what was the stimulus or what was the cause of that, right? And so you could understand why there may be an evolutionary advantage to having higher permeability, where it's basically your, your body sensing the environment around you, what, what, what have you just ingested, 
what's entered into your system, what's been applied to the surfaces of your skin, right? What's been taken into your mouth, all, all of these things, because it's, a, it's an information advantage to see if there's a risk or if it's not. Now, that it certainly explains like the intestinal permeability aspect of it. But another reason why athletes should really care about their gut microbiome is because it's a very big like driver and predictor of performance. A good buddy of mine who spun a, an athlete, uh, a, a sports microbiome company out of the, the Wies Institute at Harvard found that, that elite athletes, and he looked across NBA players, he looked across marathon runners, have a very different composition, certain organisms within their gastrointestinal tract that normal people don't. So we know that the gut microbiome plays a role in many factors like signaling, lactate clearance, bellinella is the organism, which is really important for that, but also in kind of protecting the host in, in periods of that type of distress or duress, because body doesn't know if you're really fleeing from something or if you're doing it because you want to build musculature, right? Like it's uh, the, the underlying biology of that is, is, is quite unclear. I think that there's the, a lot of people that probably struggle, like they are drawn to elite performance are very interested in the relationship between diet, metabolism, and body composition. And the, the, the microbiome is a very big driver on how much circulating insulin response, how much circulating glucose do you have in response to the very same foods? How much short chain fatty acids do you produce, which are involved in reducing your risk of type 2 diabetes. They're involved in maintaining an environment of leanness. They're involved in blocking the accumulation of brown and brown fat and, or white fat. I, I don't remember which one's the bad one and, and, or just adipose tissue accumulation in general, right? Like they're involved, your microbiome is directly involved in your mental health in the ability to respond stru to, to stressful situations without a, a, a fight or flight response. It's involved in serotonergic pathways. It's involved in dopaminergic pathways. It's involved in tons of neuroactive metabolites. Like the list goes on and on and on. It's involved in actually non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So even people that don't do any, that the accumulation, which is now shocking across the, at the population level, your microbiome is a very big predictor and risk factor on whether you're, you, you have that. It's involved in aging. People that age and have longevity that are inversely associated to the presentation of neurodegeneration can go back to microbial signaling. So it's not just about like, yes, there's aspects within athleticism purely that are directly relevant, but what, what I hope to share is the breadth of which certain types of microbiota drive risk factors for things that most athletes are actually trying to like manage right that's the point of like uh extreme performance in some way it's driven by a pro prolonging of health span over time and we know that your microbiome is kind of as i said before like the, is this new biology or this accessory organ that really helps in across all these different organ systems okay so i'm an athlete and i hearing that helping having a healthy microbiome is going to help me to perform better how do i improve my microbiome health Diet continues to be the number one way to rapidly and reproducibly alter your gut microbiome. So this is where, I mean, there's a million, a million ways this has been spliced and diced, but there's a group, I think it was the Lawrence lab out of Duke that first found that it's not so much a high meat diet, but rather a deprivation of a plant diet 
has tremendously impactful effect on your gut microbiome in ways that we can associate to, to a number of different outcomes. So the first is that like, again, it sounds very obvious and it's, it sounds so obvious that I almost want to preface it by saying like, this isn't really novel, right? Like people have been living in blue zones for a very long time, living for a very long time, very healthily by embodying many of these principles without even knowing what the microbiome is. And so this isn't like, what you hear a lot of people do in kind of like the pseudoscience industries, they'll take some aspect of science, repackage it, and make it seem like this is something completely novel that they invented. And no, that's not true at all, right? Like whatsoever. Like a diverse diet that has a high prevalence of different phytonutrients that are found across a diverse inputs of plant foods is the number one thing you can do. Try to have more than 30 different diverse uh, fruits and vegetables that are low sugar if possible within any given week. That was the yield, that, that was the findings of the part two of the Human Microbiome Project that looked at over 10,000 people. They did metagenomic sequencing, they did metabolomics, uh, you know, they analyzed it every single way. And the number one predictor of a resilient, diverse microbiome was just simply that. So, everything else. I mean, it, it, it sounds so ridiculous. Like don't eat processed foods, have a diversity of plant inputs and don't lead like a sedentary lifestyle, mitigate stress and get good sleep. Like that's it. You don't need to do anything crazier than that. Now, if you have risk factors, and again, I said extreme performance is one of them. You will probably be, have a more permeable intestines than those that, that do not. So this is where things like probiotics and glutamine, you know, there's a number of things which actually work on tight junction protein signaling, which is the mechanism by which your intestines maintain that structure, structural integrity. So just be mindful of that is all I would really say, but you don't have to over-engineer it. Like that's, that's really it. Now, if you're looking for something more specific, that's where we can go down different rabbit holes. If you have higher cholesterol, if you have methyl, yeah, MTHF mutations, if you have major depressive disorder, if you suffer from digestive or gastrointestinal issues that are marked by, here's, this is a litmus test. If every time you take a shit, it's not one or two solid, very, barely cracked, hydrated logs that require one to two wipes, you do not have an optimal gastrointestinal tract. That's it. Literally, stool is the best marker of how your gastrointestinal tract is functioning. You don't have to pay it hundreds of dollars to do a, a fancy sequencing test. You don't have to go to a functional medical doctor. You have to look in the toilet bowl and track your stool for about a week and you'll get a pretty good sense of what's going on in your colon just based off of that alone. I think wow. that's a really good, good way for people to measure that without having to get you know too deep within the rabbit hole, pay hundreds of dollars for a stool sample and more importantly, optimize you know, their nutrition and, and diet. I think you know, just kind of re-encompassing what you just said, you know, 30 different types of fruits and vegetables that are relatively low sugar that are high on the phytonutrient profile density. You know, that's a, that's a really cool way to, you know, get, get an optimized microbiome. With that being said, one of the main questions that we receive is, you know, who should take a probiotic supplement? And, you know, with that being said, you know, it's hard to get 30 different types of fruits and vegetables within a week, especially with, you know, some of the chaos during COVID-19 of trying to get to and from grocery stores with long lines and not as many things available. 
what are your thoughts there with regards to, you know, how to integrate the supplement in conjunction with, you know, lifestyle and diet? I mean, they're two very separate things, right? Like someone could still benefit from a probiotic, even with making all the dietary recommendations or someone that doesn't have a perfect diet might not even need to take a probiotic, right? Like there's, it just, this is really a question of like less about need and more about what, what, what it is you're looking for and optimization. I mean, I always start with like, I, I think people truly discount how much a good digestive system, how, what an effect that really has on your quality of life until they've had good digestion or until they've had really bad digestion. So one of the things that we hear a lot from people that start taking seed is they say, I didn't realize how bad my gas, my digestive tract was. I just had just like lived with it or I was just coping with it. I just assumed that was the natural variation of, you know, whatever it may be. Women have a little bit of a longer gastrointestinal tract than men. And so disproportionately suffer from things like IBS. Very, very few people in this country report having perfect digestion. Over 70% of people say they have some sort of digestive or gastrointestinal issue that's unaddressed by nutrition or pharmacology. I mean, those are, that's a big 60 something million people in the United States are chronically constipated, which means that they have less than five weekly bowel movements. And even less people have what I would describe as that optimal, regular, fast, reproducible uh, stool every single day, day in and day out. And so that, that's, I, I would start with people like if, 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 you, if you are aware enough of your biology to notice and, and, and care about those things, and if you can, you can afford it, my recommendation is that you should try it. You should try it and see how you feel. And if it's impactful or meaningful in your life, then that's the first thing, but it's not going to, it's not going to like save you, you know, you know, like one of the other things that people market is that they market gut brain access, this, or eight, 90% of your immune system is in your gut. And then they kind of like conflate or like, kind of like suggest that if you, Oh, if you just take this probiotic, that will fix all of that, but they don't really say it. They just take you far enough along to make you come to that conclusion. And that's just like, I think that's just duplicitous. I think that's just fraudulent marketing. Like, yes, 90, whatever percent of your immune system is in your small intestine. Now go ahead and tell me how the product you're selling me is going to interact with that statement. That's where most people just kind of like pull it off and they just like leave it right there to just like say, oh, by guilty by association. Well, this is, this is a fact about biology and maybe you're dumb enough that you won't make the connection between the two of it. And so you'll just buy our product. It's just like, come on. And people just, I, I just like aggressively call people out for making that because it's just not, it's just, it's just not like legitimate. I love that no, you I'm call not... people out though. Like I, I think they create the analogy that your gut is like a little kid playing a video game to control <laughs> everything in your whole body. And I mean, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but it's almost like saying drinking water is going to detox everything in your system. Yes and no, right? Like it's it's what you mentioned, which is kind of like cherry picking the research in some ways to create these uh, false or, or fraudulent marketing, like you mentioned. One of the things that I really like about the seed product is just the variance within strains. And so I was hoping you could kind of educate our community a little bit on the variance in strains and then the understanding of CFU and AFU that we often see on all these products that are, are like 
you know, it, hey, if it's refrigerated, it's better for you. But that's not necessarily the case. It's false marketing again. And then obviously the these numerical values with CFU and AFU. Yeah. So, I mean, strains at their, at their simplest are, again, it's people taking advantage of the overall public's lack of like understanding taxonomy that this marketing even exists, right? Like if you're a microbiologist or if you're a geneticist and you see somebody say lactobacillus acidophilus or bifidobacterium longum, you say bifidobacterium longum what, <laughs> right? Like that's just your species. There can be up to 70% genetic difference within strains of the same species. 70%. We're, we're a, 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 a fraction of that different from other mammals. I mean, it's a, from, from other non-mammals, just from other, like, like from worms, we're, we're less different, right? Like it's, there should be entirely different organisms for all intents and purposes. And so that's the first part is like, what is your strain? What is the data? And then do you have what's called functional redundancy? So we're the first product on the market even today to, to our knowledge that has multiple strains of the same species in the same product, right? And that's because they're very different. And what you hope to do is to actually get genomic reconstitution of as much of that species as you can, right? If you want to have some sort of benefit. So that's one approach. We're doing that in the oral microbiome as well. We're doing that in the vaginal microbiome. We define attributes or features that we think are important and then we try to use every single tool that we can to get there from a genomic perspective so strains are those things that you see after the species of the organism bifidobacterium longum sdb blah 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 whatever it is um and those have to usually come from somewhere so when we built this product, I mean, we, we've been in the market for a couple, a little bit over two years as a company, and we've only made one product. And that's because of, we, it was many years of R&D. We assessed how these organisms and strains play together, how they work on intestinal cells, how they work on the microbiome, what acids they produce, how they work on host cells in terms of the response pathways that we're very interested in, like immune signaling or oxidative stress. And then if we can actually deliver that to people in a way that survives, right? So I'm not saying that's the best approach for any, that every, every company has to take, but that's the approach that we took is we really want to know what's going on mechanistically, what's happening here. And so when you look at AFU or CFU and you say billions and billions, it actually reminds me of like a Trump meme where they like loop on him from the, the presidential debates just saying billions and billions and billions and billions. Like there's a really funny meme but yes i mean billions billion sounds like a lot for humans if you're thinking in terms of dollars but it doesn't it's not really that much when you have 38 give or take trillion organisms within just your gut microbiome alone right like so doesn't mean that much one billion of one strain can be effective but a hundred billion of another might be necessary, but then it might not allow for a formulation that lets other strains survive. And this is some, a trick that a lot of other companies make is they'll put a big list together, but they'll usually have the bulk of the strains made up of one or two of those species that are really cheap to produce or what's called that have high yield. So they, they're very prolific multipliers. You can get like 800 or 900 billion cells per gram, right? So what they do is they like try to create a product that has good unit economics. And so they, they'll like grow this out and then they'll put a lot of other strains on the label. So the label is big, 
but per FDA labeling guidelines, you can, you can even just put one cell of an organism and then list it on your label, but you have to just rank it in hierarchy based on how many milligrams of, those, of, of each of those ingredients you have in descending order. So there's really no way of knowing. I mean, I think what happens in some of these marketing rooms at supplement companies, they say, oh, customers seem to care about having a lot of species and a lot of strains. So they'll cook up something that just, you know, adds a very small amount of a lot of different strains, but not really anything that's biologically active. So one thing you got to ask is, are, is each strain in a dosage that's biologically relevant? And we had to do that. We went back to it. And most of them are actually laddered back to a publication, right? Where this has actually been assessed now in an experiment or in a, in a clinical setting. So that's AFU and CFU. CFU is just colony forming units. It's how many of these cells grow colonies. It's a very old technique that was developed a long time ago. I'm not saying it's a bad technique in microbiology. It's still the gold standard. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't really give you very precise measurements, right? Because you can get a lot of variation in colonies in the same batch, right? So you do it three, four times. And it's typically good when you have a single strain, because you got to give it the growth media, you put it on the plate and give it what that strain likes to eat. So the problem with CFU for a formulation like ours is we have 24 some odd strains, and they don't sit on a plate together because they need different growth media, right? Or they need different optimizations. And so the, the evolution of CFU is something called slow cytometry, where you pass these cells through a laser and it refracts back if the cell wall is intact and if that cell is viable. So it's just another way of looking at it, but it gives you a lot more precision in terms of enumeration. So just to sum up, don't fall for the hype. I mean, you could have 500 billion CFU in some supermarket probiotic, but that dominated by a few of those strains and very few of them even survived the gut. And the CFU test was designed to just prime for the growth of those organisms. Right. So it doesn't, I know that's kind of like a complicated answer, but it doesn't, it's not like none of these things are single point, like, Oh, well this has more, so it must be better. Right. It, it, it just really depends on the strains, the quantities. And in some instances you actually don't want to put too much of one strain. Otherwise, there's just no point of including the other strains. They, you just won't give them an opportunity to multiply. You just won't give them like a target site. There's so much education. I love it. All these different ways that we can help, you know, create understanding for our community and for, for our athletes. What are your thoughts on the timing of intake? Should that be on an empty stomach? Should that be, you know, preferably with food? And then what are your thoughts on, you know, do we need to refrigerate these things in order to preserve the integrity of, of the probiotic supplement? For seed, it's better to take it on an empty stomach if you can. That's because the viability is exceptional under basically what happens is when you eat, you lower the pH of your stomach acid. So you make it less acidic, but you prolong the incubation period. So instead of being in there for about 40 minutes, it's in there for about two, two, two hours or a little bit longer. And there's a lot more, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Ideally you could take it on an empty stomach, but sometimes for some people that causes GI distress. So for those people take it with food or take it after food, or five to 10 minutes before a meal is a recommendation if food is used to help that, that kind of acute response. And it makes sense, right? Like, think about it. If you're out in the wild and you ate like a large, something that had a large microbial load in it, 
like you should feel distressed because it's your body's way of like alerting you that there is a microbial presence within what you just consumed and ingested. Not all of that is, is going to be good. I mean, the body doesn't know initially if it's a good organism or a bad organism. That's a trained adaptation that happens. So that's why you see discomfort in some probiotics in the first few weeks while there's acclimation. In terms of refrigeration versus not, this is something that, that really bothers me because it's kind of marketed as like refrigeration is a form of like it's fresher or like it's, it's more active or it's like more alive because you have to keep them cooler so that the cells could stay alive. It's total uh, sleight of hand, right? Like whether an organism is, is, is refrigerated or not, it goes through the exact same production process. It's fermented, it's scaled up, it's lyophilized. So actually every organism, refrigerated or not, has been sublimated. So that means the water has been sublimated out of it and it's not actually metabolically active until it comes back in contact with water. So until you ingest it and it rehydrates and it regains metabolic activity. So it's a total myth that those organisms are in there alive, just kicking around, waiting for you to, to take it. No, I mean, just, it's just not true. Actually, what happens is it's a technique that companies use to extend their shelf life and push the burden of keeping the, the organisms alive onto you instead of onto the company. So actually, in some ways, it's a less robust stabilization system or a less robust overages, right? Because they don't have to like figure that out on their end. Or they, don't, they don't have to insulate it with enough overages to get to the end of shelf life in a way that works. So it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge myth. And I, but I understand why it's effective. Like if you look at something in a refrigerated section, it's cooler it's on a cold transport chain. You just kind of think that it has an expiration and was made recently. And like someone like put it on ice and sent it. I, it's just not, that's not what's going on. <laughs> Fritz, what kind of things have been uh, flowing in between your ears that you'd like to discuss with Raja? <laughs> And so many things, but we don't have a lot of time. So most of the supplement companies barely make the minimum for FDA requirements. Your company goes above and beyond, almost bridging the gap to a pharmaceutical company as far as how much research you consider, how much research you actually perform yourself on your own products. You want to talk about some of those double-blind or even triple-blind placebo-controlled studies that you and Dr. Gregor Reed and some of the other awesome scientists you have on staff conduct. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for, for people that are a little bit like less technical, there's like mechanistic science and then there's clinical science and they're two very different things. One's trying to understand how something works and you use a lot of different techniques for that. The other one is to say, hey, if we blind people and we just give you something, can we pick up a difference? Not double blind, which most people are actually used to, but the biggest problem in like microbiome today is the triple lack of triple blinding, which means they'll get all their data back and then they'll know which group was the intervention and which one was the placebo. And they'll kind of cherry pick like what worked and what doesn't. Like there's, there's one product that's marketed for like gut brain access and stress relief that actually just drives me absolutely crazy. Because if you look at the panel, there's like 10 things that they look for. And they just picked up on, the, on one of them, which was like ruminate, excessive ruminations prior to sleep. And then they market that as it's like, this is like works on your gut brain access and it works on stress and anxiety. But in that same panel, they also actually looked at a questionnaire for stress and a questionnaire for anxiety. And neither of those beat the placebo. 
Oh my so, God. but, 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 but how few people go into the actual questionnaires and the raw data and, and that's, that's like on reviewers at journals to not like pick up on that, and like force them to discuss that, discuss those and the limitations. So like you t- typically like triple blinding is really important. And we try to interrogate, again, we do things few, few things, but we try to do them really well. So we have five clinical trials going for DSO one on a, a lot of different areas, IBS recovery after antibiotics, chronic constipation, after alcohol consumption, normalization of the microbiota, right? Like uh, short chain fatty acid production, like goes on and on and on. We want to test these things and all these attributes on this composition. Next, we're launching, actually coming up as a pediatric product for children. Children actually suffer a lot from GI disorders because you can't control their diet that well. And maybe they're pickier eaters and also their microbiota is a little bit less mature, less developed. So we also have a trial going on right now for that in constipation, entire sequencing of the microbiome. And here's the, here's the cool thing is like we look at these functional a- attributes, things that actually really matter to people, like number of weekly bowel movements or stool consistency or intestinal transit time or, you know, a lot of these, these functional parameters. But then we also go very, very mechanistic. So we see we do the whole metabolome, what's going on. We're doing blood, we're looking at urine, we're doing stool, and we're triple blinding everything. So everybody's being analyzed. And then at the very end, we find out who is in what group after all the analysis is done. And that's just like, look, like, yes, maybe it makes it harder. Maybe like you don't get as like blockbuster headlines as a result of it, but it just makes it more real. And ultimately it invests in the long-term value of the product, right? Because you're saying, hey, check this out. And then it's very hard for people to like replicate, like people can cherry pick their way to whatever, building a good commercial business, but data doesn't lie. And when good scientists look and pour into data, it's like Christmas, you know, and you, you know, you know, if you're getting, if there's a good present there, if it's something that, you know, your mom just like recycled from like last year, like it's, you, you know, if that data is good or not. That's such a great description. And you know, obviously you're, you're the co-founder of Seed, but you're also a life sciences entrepreneur, which means, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of knowledge within the world of business. And, you know, you mentioned working with researchers like Gregor Reed and really going in depth with regards to doing the right thing with regards to your studies, not just the thing that is going to get blockbuster headlines. And, you know, one of the things we like to emphasize on the Invictus Mindset podcast is how you do anything is how you do everything. And so with that being said, what are your thoughts on the importance of working with people that are that are incredibly talented within the field to ensure that you're getting the right data to create the highest quality, you know, product on the market? It just goes back to like what you're trying to build, right? Like we're not really trying to build a probiotics company. And so in in order for us to do that, especially in what's called like a frontier field, you have to stand on the shoulders of giants. Like if you're not, you know, with, with our women's health division, we work with the leading researcher in the world in vaginal microbiome and our gut, gut brain division, we work in the top scientists in the world on the gut brain axis. Gregor Reed obviously is the most celebrated scientist or one of the most celebrated scientists that he actually authored the definition for the, for the, the, the currently regulated definition of probiotics in 2001 at um, a United Nations panel that was convened in Cordoba, Argentina. So like, you're only as good. I'm sure you guys are like, you don't want to go, go to the gym and train with like that, like scrawny kid that 
is on his phone the whole time and not really taking like you you want to do you want to push push deeper you want to go harder and you want to understand things at a deeper level because you want to do things a new way right or you want to discover something a new angle on something that hasn't really been seen or done before and so obviously the interests of business are very rarely aligned with the interests of science science is a slow burning long needs to be replicated field that is actually quite boring. Business is like grow massively, pump up your value, pump up your community, like grow your stock, like all that other stuff. And the two of them have to, there's a, there's a tension between doing that well. And so the only way that I think we can navigate that tension is by like having multiple, almost like peer reviewers, right? It's like having people like either lead these trials, um, lead these research initiatives or we actually build entire research initiatives and product lines around their work. So for women's health, right? Like the vaginal microbiome, whether you're a man or a woman, sex is something that everybody does. And most people don't realize that it's the number one disruptor of the vaginal microbiome, which has a ton of complications in both part partners risk of sexually transmitted infections about fertility, about pregnancy, and then even some functional things like the vaginal pH and odor are entirely driven by, microbial imbalances and structures. And so it's not like, it's not like saying like, oh, here's a probiotic for women's health, which you'll go, you'll see a ton of, right? People marketing, oh, take this probiotic, it's for, for women's health, it's for menstruation, blah, 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 it's for this. And that's so insulting because anyone who understands biology knows that if an oral capsule that you're swallowing is making its way to the vagina, something is very, very wrong with your biology. Like that's just <laughs> not how it works, right? So you, it's just the bar is so low that people say this because they look at the market first. They say women's health is a hot topic or gut brain access is a big area. And then they just like try to like prey on that, that same like conflation between like this is what people want and then let's give it to them. And invariably one out of five will be a strong responder because that's just statistics. And then they'll get a confirmation bias and tell their friends that it works from them. And that's all they need to build a business, right? It's just not, it's just like, it's not clean science. And if the social media, the social media company aspect of the company takes that feedback and they send it out into the world and everybody sees that confirmation bias and then they buy the product. And you guys don't do that. I mean, I know I've taken seed, Bryce has taken seed. A lot of people have taken it, had amazing results but you won't take our stories and sell your product with our stories. You sell the research instead. And that says a lot about the character. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 won't, you won't see us use a testimonial. We just don't do it. That I love that you're pushing the edge within the industry. As we kind of wrap things up today, what are like five major takeaways that people can utilize to enhance their microbiome? I know you've already mentioned the 30 different fruits and vegetables on previous podcasts. You've kind of mentioned... You know, having a dog is a great way, um, not utilizing too many cleaning products, but, you know, to kind of encompass this, to give people some tools to enhance their microbiome, what are five things from you? Sleep is actually something which most people don't, don't appreciate fully. I think we're overstimulated. This is like now meandering over into me, like on my soapbox, but like put your phone away before you go to bed. Like, just don't look at your phone. Like just leave it in a different room. Just go to bed. When you go to bed, just go to bed. Try to get like a, a couple proper REM cycles so that you feel rested. And by the way, this isn't even just for your microbiome. Like one night of bad sleep, like stops the ability to like for muscle to 
to be formed for a very significant period of time following that acute night of bad sleep. So for even just performance athletes, like that's just like something you should be really, really mindful of. I know it's boring, but just, just try to try to sleep well. 30 different fruits and vegetables is a good one, but kind of as like a t- tag along to that is like, just don't skimp on the fiber unless you have some severe issue, like I'd have to follow a FODMAPS diet, which is fiber elimination. And that's my theory for why some people, I mean, respond so well to like things like the carnivore diet or like a high fat or like a high meat diet is like, there's some underlying small intestinal dysbiosis that's just been really hard to solve. But instead of like sides, instead of like solving it, don't just starve everything out, right? Like we know this is not like conjecture. This is like fact that, metabolic activity from the consumption of non-digestible carbohydrates is significantly related to a number of organ systems in the body that we talked about earlier. That's just a fact. That doesn't mean that you have to be a vegetarian. That just means that you got to balance what you eat out with appropriate intake of indigestible plant matter. At least that's my recommendation. I mean, look, maybe someone will come out with like a radical carnivore longevity stuff, but I just don't, I just, I'm just not there from the probably 300 papers that I've read on the subject and everything from microbiome, blue zone diets, all the way through like hard, hard ketogenic diet. And I think that some of the more balanced nutritionists these days are on that. Don't be on either end of the extreme, right? Like it's about making sure that you, regardless, you can, you can still stay in ketosis, for example, while consuming plant matter. So it doesn't have to be black or white. The other one is that, uh, I mean, you, you should be tolerant about like, uh, obviously antibiotic use and other things you wouldn't expect like uh, Tylenols and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They, they do have an issue, they, they do have an effect on your microbiome. Look, I, I, my take home message on this is to like, actually don't overcomplicate it. Like, I'm very critical of these people that try to sound like Confucius and say, in order for you to do this, you have to rely on our next generation insights that blah, 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 were developed from this, 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 and this. It's just, again, like it, it's, it's not enough that like someone can build a good business, but they also have to sound like, like they invented something when it, it might, it's probably not the case that they did. Maybe they invented new ways of analyzing something, but they're, most of these nutritional recommendations and insights for the most part have remained the same over hundreds of years. And so I just, I, I want to like, bring some like moderation and temperance to like, like nutrition mania and, and diet mania. Yes. There are ways of optimization. Yes. It's personalized. You people respond a little bit differently, but following some basic principles and then just trying to actually like not overthink it can probably take you pretty far. Well, thank you so much, man, for your time, your energy, and really simplifying the complexity of gut health and microbiome. Where can people find you and kind of, kind of learn a little bit more? So there's kind of three places. If you want to check out seed and the probiotics and science and some of our scientists and some of our data, just go to seed.com. If you want to see the larger vision across what we're doing in microbial sciences and the environment and honeybees and therapeutics and women's health, then go to seedhealth.com. And that's the main places to find find us. If you want to find me, I don't, I I mean, I only really talk about like evolutionary biology and science and microscopy on my social channels, but I'm at, at wild Raja and I don't really talk. I'm you mostly use my platform for like uh, conservation and environmentalism and 
physics, space science. I don't know. I'm just kind of like science nerd in general. So. Very cool, man. Well, thank you so much. And I'll also throw in as a, a, as a tagline for further education for people. Seed University is a really cool place to get additional education on your product and some of the cool things that you guys are putting out into the universe. Uh, Fritz, any last minute thoughts, man? Oh, that was great. Just grateful to be here with you guys. Awesome. Well, thank you so much today, Raja. If you guys liked my conversation with Raja today, please rate, review, and subscribe. Share with your friends. Raja, we're going to have to do part two, man. Sounds good, guys. As always, guys, stay on the hunt for who you've not yet become. Take care, Raja. Bye-bye, guys.